Bible ready to go? Yes, sir. All right, look at 1 Kings chapter number 19. Now, Ryan has been teaching probably more on Elijah than what I have. So tonight I get the chance to teach a little bit. and We'll look at a few verses, okay? We won't look at a lot of verses. I've been reading a book. I read one while I was on vacation. It was the name of the book is God's Mountain Man. And it's an old book by a guy named Dave Roper. Dave Roper. Wow, what a writer. I wish I had that much of his brains. I mean, he is an amazing writer. And he worked for a guy named Ray Stedman. Ray Stedman was a, a great, great pastor way back when in uh, Palo Alto, California, which is by Stanford University. And he, uh, he, uh, he was an expositor. And when I was a young preacher, I didn't learn some things in college that I should have learned. I wish they'd have taught us better. But I went to a, a special ex expository preaching conference. It was in Houston, Texas. And it was put on by Ray Stedman, who had a love for expository preaching. You say, Pastor, what's expository preaching? It's what you heard this morning. Verse by verse, and it follows what it says, and somebody explains to you what it means, okay? And uh, Ray Stedman probably influenced me as much as anybody else. Because I thought to myself, why wouldn't somebody preach it that way? Why would you preach topical? Why would you make up a sermon? Why not just preach what it says? By the way, preaching what it says isn't a bad thing. Would you agree with that? And so I started preaching like that because of a guy named Ray Stedman. And one of his assistant pastors, who's real smart, was named Dave Roper. You see how all that passes down and somebody influences all the way down. Isn't that amazing how that works? Come on, don't you think that's amazing? Oh, anyways, if you want to read a good book on Elijah, that's a good book. You would enjoy that. God's Mountain Man, if you can find it. Because <laughs> it's one of them books that's not probably in print anymore. All right, let's, let's read the scriptures. You're in chapter number 19, verse 19. You got it? It says, so he departed thence. Don't you love the King James? <laughs> he departed thence. <laughs> that means he left. All right. <laughs> and it says... And he found Elisha, the son of Shaphath, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he with the 12, and as Elijah passed by him, and he cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen, and he ran after Elijah, and he said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, go back again, for what have I done to thee? Uh, that sounds almost like he's being kind of a smart aleck to him. I don't think that's the intent. I think what he's saying is, go save for a while. You're leaving to follow me. Go, you, you got my permission. I'm not going to hold you back from doing that. That's, what, that's how it should read. That's what he means, okay? So it goes on and it says, and he returned back from him. And he said, he, he uh, took the yoke of oxen and he slew them and he boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and he gave unto the people and they did eat. And they arose and went to Elijah and ministered unto him. I got to tell you this story just because I hadn't thought of it in years. One of my first trips to Thailand, I went to northern Thailand, was way up around around Chiang Rai. It was in that golden triangle. That's where they had poppies. Back in those days, the drug lords actually had bigger armies than the Thai government. And there was an area up there where it was real dangerous. You didn't want to drive down a road because you may never come home again. You know what I mean? Every once in a while, you'd run into a dude with a machine gun. He'd say, this is about as far as you're going to go. And you'd say, yes, sir. I think we'll go some other way. Because they had their own guards. And they were well equipped. Now, here's the amazing thing. Uh, when we flew in there the first time to Chiang Rai, Chiang Rai was an airfield 
that was built by the CIA for a company called Air America that flew arms and drugs back in the 50s for the American government. And they were arming a group of people in the highlands of Vietnam with arms to fight the communists. And they were financing it with heroin and paying for the drugs. And, and Air America, there was a Mel Gibson movie yeah. that was about that the way back when. And that was back in the 50s before we ever knew there was a place called Vietnam. And the first time I landed there, there was a Quonset hut. Do you know what a Quonset hut is? It's a round looking building and that was the terminal. And when you hit the runway, the plane was like a roller coaster because that, that runway was like this. And when you're going in a, in a plane, <laughs> that's exciting. <laughs> so we got off there and we started doing work way up in the villages. And, and so uh, one of the things we'd do back in those days is we'd go into a village and we'd buy a, a, either a pig or uh, oxen, <laughs> and we'd feed the whole village. And the missionary would go in there for like a month and preach to them. And he'd start with Adam and Eve, and he'd work his way all the way up to the gospel, uh -huh. up to Jesus. And then we'd go in there for about a week, and we'd preach and tell them the gospel. And then we'd get a bunch of them saved, and we'd get a church started. That's what we'd do. But the way you'd get them to come to hear you preach, you'd bring a generator and you'd get lights and you'd string lights and start the generator because they didn't have electricity up there. And uh, one night we ate oxen. It says he slew those 12 oxen and they ate it. And the people ate it. Whoa. Have you ever ate the bottom of your shoe? You remember when they were made of leather way back when and were not rubber? And, and you can take that and you can... <clears throat> And then you'd get that hunk of whatever that was he's eating, that oxen, and you'd start chewing on that rascal and you'd think, that's the only thing I ever put in my mouth, that grew. <laughs> an, oxen, an oxen is a, that's something they use to plow and nor... It's not really a cow. It's something like a cow, but it's not really a cow. And if a guy's, a guy's got, uh, oh, I don't know. An oxen doesn't even really even look like a cow if you look at them. They've got a weird kind of a body shape. They don't really look like a cow. But they, they can plow in that mud. They, do them in, they use them in that, in that rice fields. Okay, they... Get them in there, and if you watch, they'll have them. Little kid have two or three of them, and they'll be eating grass along the side, those rice patties, and they'll, they'll be watching. And if, an oxen is really valuable. Now, one of the things you need to keep in mind, he's plowing with 12. That means this dude was a hoss to get 12 oxen. It also means that his family was wealthy. Because if you had one ox in northern Thailand, you had a lot of money, but if you had 12 you had big bucks because you really were, were quite the deal. Now, to catch you up on the story, for those of you that haven't remembered where Ryan was teaching, let me just say, and I'll just give you the, the highlights. Elijah was, had the 450 prophets of Baal, uh, 400 Ashtaroth prophets, and he killed them on Mount Carmel, took off running, Ran to Jezreel. After he left Jezreel, he started south and <laughs> ran down all the way, and he ends up down by Mount Sinai. He probably runs about three or 400 miles, okay? On the way, he has an angelic encounter, and he is wore out. By the way, uh, you go and you fight the cults, and you eight fifty against one, you might have an adrenaline rush or two or three or 25, and he's wore out, and this angel comes and feeds him and then lets him sleep and come back and feeds him again. And then that second meal evidently was pretty good because he goes 40 days and 40 nights in the energy of that one meal. That's quite the recipe. How many would agree with that? So he ends up down there, I think, at the cave 
where Moses was at when Moses said, Lord, I want to see your, I want to see you pass by. And God said, if you can't, if you see me, you'll die. And so he said, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. How many remember singing that song? And he said, I'll cover you with my hand and I'll pass by and I'll let you see my backside. I'll let you see, I'll let you see my virtue, my goodness. And God passes by and Elijah basically says, you got a couple things you need to do. You got a guy up in Syria you need to mess with and you got to get a new prophet. And he gives him two or three jobs and he says, all right, you need to take off and go back where you came from. So he takes off. He leaves all the way down there in the Sinai Peninsula at Mount Sinai where Moses got the Ten Commandments. I remember that. And he starts back up, goes that path all the way back up. And as he's going back up, because he's supposed to go up to Syria and mess with this dude up in Syria. That's a long ways from there. And on the way, he meets this guy named Elisha. Okay? All right. How are we doing on catching up? You all right with that? All right. I don't know how long it's been since we've been in Elijah and the last time Ryan taught, but yeah, I know we didn't go to church last week, did we? So if your memory's as good as mine, you need all the reminders you can get, right? All right. Now, Theodore Epp said, do you know who Theodore Epp was? Oh, back to the Bible, way back when, taught on the radio. But Theodore Epp was the guy before Warren Wiersbe, who was the guy before, you know, it goes way back there. He said this, it doesn't matter whether or not people understand us or think we are even sane as long as we are true to God. Obedience to him is the important thing. Now, one thing you'd have to say about Elijah, he was obedient to God. Would you agree with that? Now, do you think he was sane? Do you think people thought Elijah was sane? Do you think Ahab thought he was sane? <laughs> no, I think they thought he was a nut. And if he was around today, we'd think he was a nut. I don't think he'd get many invites to preach at the average Baptist churches. I don't. I don't think Jesus would either. Hate to be ugly. But I don't think that... Most people had any idea who this Elijah guy was. Listen to this. He faces down a, a wicked king. He lives by a brook and he's fed by ravens. He, he lives with a widow woman up in a pagan land. He's raised a dead boy back to life. He's challenged the king again. He's called for a public con, uh, confrontation. Boy, I'm having a hard time reading tonight. He's ridiculed other religions. He's mocked the prophets of Baal. He's called down fire from heaven. He's slaughtered the prophets of Baal. He's outrun the king's chariot. He's ran from a queen. He's prayed that he might die. He's hiked 40 days across the desert. He's hid in the cave. He's heard God's voice. And he's claimed to be the only righteous man still left alive. Do you think he's crazy? Uh, to be quite honest with you, would you say that most people would think he was balanced? <laughs> balanced. A book that helped me when I was a young Christian trying to come out of legalism, <laughs> trying to figure out where I was coming from was a guy named Charles Ryrie. You ever heard of the, Char the Ryrie Study Bible? You ever heard of that? He had a book called Balancing the Christian Life. And I remember reading that, and I thought that was revolutionary to me. It was just, wow, what an eye-opening book that was. And when you think about being balanced, having all areas in your life in harmony, you know, when we choose leaders, we look for people with balanced temperaments. We look at people who can balance the demands of work and home. We look for people that can react to a crisis with a balanced approach. Balance. Very rare commodity. Would you agree with that? And to be quite honest with you, uh, balanced doesn't make the news. Normally, it's the imbalanced ones that make the news. And balanced by today's standard would be boring for some. Would you agree? Some, if you was balanced, they just think you're just boring. Plain vanilla. Plain vanilla. One thing about old Elijah, I wouldn't say that most people thought he was plain vanilla. He was Rocky Road. 
because everything he seemed to do was Rocky Road. You know, when you study the Bible, one of the amazing things about men in the Bible, leaders in the Bible, Bible characters, would you say that Moses was balanced? Don't cross him. He might put you in the sand. Yes or no? Did he kill an Egyptian with his bare hands? Yeah. How about Jacob? Would you say he was balanced? Better watch your wallet. He might steal it. His name meant deceiver, chiseler. He was always jipping people out of something, yes or no. When you go in the scriptures, would you say that Peter was balanced? He's the only guy in the Bible with a foot-shaped mouth. Would you agree with that? Every time he turned around, he put his foot in his mouth. Yes or no? Now, the amazing thing about people in the Bible, it seems like that God uses some unusual folks. Now, how many are rejoicing right now? Have you looked in the mirror literally, literally lately? <laughs> you know, I ain't got to use some weirdos or else I ain't got a chance. You know, when you think about Elijah, he was headstrong, he was determined, he was impetuous, he was prone to emotional ex- excess, he was deeply devoted but he was God's man. He was God's prophet. He was God's spokesman to a very evil and perverse generation. And the great thing about Elijah, God's going to give him a protege, an apprentice, a young man that he can mentor. And Elijah needed a friend that could walk with him and share his burdens. He needed somebody that could to be quite honest with you, continue his work when he was gone. And so when we begin to read the story, we see Elisha. Didn't the names almost sound the same? Elijah and Elisha. Uh, and when we meet him here, he's plowing a field. What a, what a unique start. How'd you like to be walking along and you're going north towards Syria to meet Ben-Hadad? And as you walk along, there's a dude plowing and the Holy Spirit kind of says, That's the guy. And so Elijah makes a pit stop, and soon this guy named Elisha that's plowing with 12 oxen, he's going to burn the plow. He's going to slay these oxen, and this wild-looking mountain man, Elijah, has a new protege, Elisha. Now, we're going to talk about that. We're going, to, we're going to do our best to get some lessons from the calling of Elisha. Now, our sermon's simple tonight. You got some notes. There's not a lot of stuff, but there's three or four things tonight I want you to get. All right? First thing that I'd say this evening that seems like God's call forces us to make a difficult choice. God's call forces us to make a difficult choice. Look at verse 19. Elisha went from there, found Elisha, the son of Shaphath. He's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair, and Elijah went up to him, and he threw his cloak around him. Now, how many would think that would be strange? You got some guy wearing some sort of mantle, a cloak, And you're out there working in the field, and this guy comes by, and he takes off his coat, and he throws it over your shoulders. And you never met this dude. Would that get your attention? I'll tell you what gets my attention. I know I'm maybe a little strange, but I got these people that stand on the street corners down here by the Madison and different places, and they got these signs, and they're begging, and they come, and they walk up that deal and you're inside your car and they got that sign, they're putting that sign there and they're walking by and you're kind of going, I'm getting a little uncomfortable here. Come on, does that bother you a little bit? Am I the only one that gets a little freaked out by that? Come on, does it freak anybody else? Somebody say, well, it doesn't freak me out. Well, I'll let you start driving me around because I see it all the time. 
there's certain things in life that would get your attention. And some guy throwing his cloak over your shoulder while you're out plowing with 12 yoke of oxen would do it. Well, what's this mantle deal? Well, when you read in the scripture, take your Bible. Let's look at a passage over in the gospel of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter number three. Who do you think the greatest prophet was in the New Testament? I'm kind of betting on John the Baptist. All right. So let's look at Matthew chapter three and, and, and look down about verse number four. Look at chapter three and verse number four. The Bible says about uh, John the Baptist, it says, for this is he who was spoken of the prophet Elijah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And the same John had a raiment of camel hair. Now, if you saw this dude that lived in the wilderness, was a hermit and had a mantle or the garment of a camel hair, do you think John ever caused anybody to be startled? Yes or no? And the Bible says, and the leather girdle around his loins and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Now, John the Baptist, I think, in my opinion, had the same kind of a situation that Elijah had. He had a prophet's mantle. There was a particular dress, a particular uniform. I don't know the word you want to use that the Old Testament prophets would wear. And when people looked at him, they said, that's a prophet. That's a man of God. So Elijah walks by. By the way, there's no place in the scriptures where it ever says Elijah and Elisha's ever met. And here you got a guy out in the field plowing with 12 oak of oxen. He's tied off to the 12th pair. And you got this guy walking by with some kind of a mantle, some kind of a garb that kind of sets him apart. And he takes that mantle and he throws it over his shoulders. Isn't that interesting? By the way, it changed his life. Changed his life. He's a son of Shapath. He's a rich man. He's got 12 yoke. His family's wealthy. And he's probably in line to get the family farm. Yes or no? You think Shapath had big dreams for his son Elijah? Yes or no? And one guy walking down the road one day changes everything because basically he comes along and he says, hey, God's chosen you to be the next man of God, the prophet. Throwing the mantle over the shoulder, symbolic act. God's calling's upon you. God wants you. Isn't that interesting? Well, immediately... Without seeming a word being spoken, Elijah strides up to Elisha, takes the cloak off, puts it on Elisha. He begins to walk away. And Elisha knew what it meant. Elijah was offering him a job. Now this young man has a choice to make. He could stay with the oxen or he could follow the prophet's call. He could be the life of a farmer Or he could learn a whole new deal. You don't think by this time after several months that words reached that this guy named Elijah had a duel on the mountain and slew 450 prophets of one sect and 400 of another, 850. He wiped out the cults in one day. You don't think they heard about that? Now, it seems like that Elisha knows who he is, but they've never met. And it could be that that mantle, that prophet's garb is what gave it away. 
And when he threw it over his shoulder, now he has a choice to make. Will I be a farmer? Or will I be a prophet of God? Well, John Eldridge in his book, uh, The Wild at Heart, says, God's placed inside every man a desire to find an adventure to live. That's why men love fast cars. Dodger baseball, no, it doesn't say that. <laughs> Football and movies like Braveheart and the Dirty Dozen. It's also why we don't watch Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> Ladies, are you listening? Men were born for adventure. They're hardwired by God to take risks and to make a glance at our cards and look around the table and take deep breaths and say, all in. I'm not saying that women don't do that because they do, but there's a difference between men and women because men and women are different. And they hadn't figured that. Somebody needs to tell you that. (laughs) So Elijah chooses the hard path. He had it made in the shade. He's got a farm. He's got a family. And he says, you know what? I'm going to follow this guy, and I don't know what the perks are, but it seems like that's what God wants me to do. Years ago, I remember a sign I read. California, it was for the Conservation Corps. The sign said, long hours, hard work, low pay. And it was those guys, they would fly into forest fires and would fight those fires out there in California. And amazingly, there were people that that signed up. Hernando Cortez, 1519, this is a true story. He sailed into the harbor of Veracruz, Mexico, and he brought with him 600 men. They were on 11 ships. And over the next two years, he he fought Montezuma and all the warriors of the Aztec Empire. And Cortez became the conqueror of all Mexico. How did such an incredible feat ever take place when other expeditions failed miserably. The secret. Cortez knew from the very beginning that he and his men faced an impossible odds. He also knew that the road before him was dangerous and it was difficult and he knew that his men would be tempted to abandon their quest and return to Spain. So as soon as Cortez and his men came ashore and they unloaded their provisions He ordered all 11 ships to be burned. It was either conquer or be conquered. But there was no turning back. You say, Pastor, why did Elijah burn his plow? Why did Elijah slay his oxen? Sometimes God asks you to make a hard choice. Difficult choices. I talked to a young lady. She's not super young. She's been visiting our church. Bev and I saw her last Thursday night. We got talking. She's single. And she said, I'd like to be married. I've been praying God give me the right one. But she said, I'll be real honest with you, Pastor. I'm not going to drop my standards because I think the Bible has certain things it calls for. And I'm not going to settle. I like the way she said that. Uh I'm not going to settle. You say, Pastor, what do you think that is? As somebody making a difficult choice. You listening? Because most people I know want to get married. And most people I know want to have a family. And most people I want to know want to have some security in life. Sometimes God calls you and it's a difficult choice. Well, let me give you the second one. You ready? God's call leads to a painful separation. Look at verse 20. Elisha left his oxen. He ran after Elijah. 
He said, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye. And he said, then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? Now, when you look at this story, there are several things you're going to learn from his response. First of all, it was immediate. Did you get the way it read? And he left the oxen. A lot of times people say, well, let me weigh my options. A lot of times people say, well, what's in it for me? Sometimes people say, well, what's the perks? Elijah said, okay, I'm ready to go. Immediate response. When he accepts the call, he asks Elijah for permission, number two, to say goodbye to his parents. That's a humble response. And thirdly, uh, it's a very human response. He doesn't want to suddenly disappear and leave his parents to wonder where he went. He needs to go back home and he, he needs to tell mom and dad what he's doing. And so Elijah basically says, take the time you need to go say goodbye to your folks. You know, when you read the scriptures, some of us may recall the case of the would-be disciple who was called by Christ, and he asked for permission to go back and bury his dad. Luke chapter number 9 talks about that, and, and basically the scripture says, let me go home and stay with my father until he dies, and when he's gone, then I will follow you. But let me re be real honest. The reason that you reads like that is because basically he's cloaking a, a, a kind of a false piety. When, when everything's right, then I'll do it. I really don't think he ever really wanted to follow Christ. Taking care of your your father was pretty much a pious excuse. But Elijah wasn't like that. He wanted to just say farewell to his family and then he would follow Elijah. And Elijah says, go do it. Go do it. When you come to the high cost of following Jesus, following Jesus always leads to a cross. Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. Faithfulness to Christ may sometimes ask us to do things that even those that we're closest to won't understand. We have several in this church who are parents of missionaries. I know a little bit about that. When my kids were small, we dedicated them to the Lord. And we said to the Lord, Lord, they're yours. Whatever you want to do with them, that's up to you. Little did we know <laughs> what that meant. I remember, some of you may know this, I doubt if many of you do. When the kids were over in Thailand, we'd go over and see them and when you said goodbye, it was almost like somebody died. It was horrible. We'd walk through the airports in Bangkok, and tears would just roll down our face. People would look at us like we were strange. Why are those two old people crying? We'd say, well, we just said goodbye to them grandkids. We may not see him again. We always, uh, some of you, I'll give you a trade secret. We always would 
We couldn't come back to the church right then. We needed to leave them and go heal up a little bit before we came back because emotionally we'd struggle. And so we, the reason we started going to China, to be quite honest with you, we'd go to China and we'd stay in a real nice hotel for a couple of days and just kind of lick our wounds and then get ourselves ready to go home. Knowing that it'd be a while. I know a little bit about saying goodbye. Not as much as some. But I know exactly what Elisha was doing. I do. You see, sometimes God's call is a separation. Third thing I'd say is God's call requires a decisive action. Look at verse 21. It says, so Elijah left him. He went back. He took the yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them and he burned the plowing equipment and he cooked the meat. He gave it to the people. Then they ate. They set out to follow Elijah and to become his attendant. You know, one of the things I've found out in my life, you can't sit on the fence forever. Elijah had a few seconds to make a life-changing decision. Once he signed on with Elijah as his apprentice, he burned his bridges. He said, there ain't no going back. I'm burning the plow. I'm slaying the oxen. I'm never looking back. By the way, if you read the story, it's almost like he threw a going away party. I can't eat all this oxen by myself. Thank God he didn't have to. <laughs> he invited everybody that he knew. He cooked the meat. He gave it to the people. And it's his way of saying, hey, the old life's gone. I got a new life. I've received the mantle, the call of a prophet. Billy Sunday is one of my favorites. I used to go to Moody Bible Institute. I'm sure you've heard of that. If you haven't, you should have. And they had a section in there. It was like a museum. And I used to love to go. And they had voice recordings of D.O. Moody and Billy Sunday. And they had pictures of those old men of God. And Billy Sunday was a baseball player that turned to be an evangelist. When I was in Bible college many years ago, Johnny Pope acted out Billy Sunday and reenacted his life. And he had a very colorful life. His conversion was in 1886 at six in the Pacific Garden Mission. If you watch your cable, they still have a program called Pacific Garden Mission. It's still on. As Billy Sunday tells the story, he was standing outside a saloon with some of his teammates on the Chicago White Sox, and it's today called the Cubs. When the gospel wagon from the mission came down the street, he was gripped with conviction. And he, and he turned to his friends, and he told his friends, he said, boys, he said, I've come to the end of the line. He said, I'm through with his old life. I'm headed in a new direction. And that marked the change in his life. A few nights later, when he heard Harry Monroe preach at the mission, he gave his heart to Christ. And for the rest of his life, he preached in person, think about this, to 100 million people. And with one hand, They'd hit the sawdust trail, and he shook personally the hand of one million people that got saved in his meetings. That's incredible. Amen. When God calls, there's a decision to be made. 
You know, I've been a pastor in the South now for quite a long time. And I can't tell you the stories I've heard through the years of people who said, well, there was a time in my life when I felt like God called me. There was a time in my life when I felt like I heard the call to preach, but I didn't do it. Jesus said, no one that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's nothing wrong in plowing a field. There's nothing wrong with being anything unless it keeps you from Jesus. You better burn the plow. You better get rid of all the hindrances. If God calls you, you better make sure you do what you're supposed to. I may not be much, but for the last 40 years, I've tried to do what the Lord called me to do. Amen. I didn't buy houses. I don't have any businesses on the side. There's one thing God called me to do, and for the last 40 years, I've tried my hardest to do it. Because when I put my hand to the plow, I haven't looked back. I haven't always plowed a straight line. <laughs> but I had never stopped. One of my favorite movies is a movie called a league of their own. I like Tom Hanks. It's a gal in that movie called Glenda Davis. Towards the end of the movie, Tom Hanks, who is the coach of the baseball team, it's a girls baseball team during World War II. Kind of a weird story, but it, it, was, it happened. Glenda Davis, the star catchers, decided to go home. Her husband's come back from the war she decides that she's going to go with her husband. Well, the team's about ready to go to the championship. And Tom Hanks has kind of a pep talk with her. He confronts her by reminding her by, about how much she loves the game. He said, you love the game of baseball. She said, I don't love it. I don't love it the way you. Oh, yes, you do, Hanks replies. It's in your blood. She says, it's just too hard. At that moment, Tom Hanks turns slightly, he grabs his face, he kind of grimaces, and then he says, you're right, it is hard. It's supposed to be hard. It's hard that makes it good. And with that, he gets on the rest of the team on the bus. And Glenda Davis leaves with her husband. Later on, she returns in time for the seventh and deciding game of the series. But that line, it's supposed to be hard. It's hard that makes it good. What a statement. Sometimes it's hard, but it's supposed to be hard. And it's hard is what makes it good. Martin Luther said it this way, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Well, I got to quit. Some of you think I don't ever have a watch. I actually do. God's call is for a total commitment. That's the last one. God's call is for a total commitment. 
You know, commitment's not a word you hear a lot of, is it? I told somebody on the plane the other day, I said, this is my wife. We've been married 42 years. 42 years? Say, Pastor, what does it mean to be committed? It means you make a choice. It means you don't worry about keeping your options open. It means you don't give yourself a way out. It means pursuing something wholeheartedly. It means there's no contingency plan to fall back on. It means being 100% sold out to a person, to a cause to a goal. It means you get out there on the limb and you stay there. And there ain't no way back. I wonder if we're that kind of a disciple. I tell you one thing I'm convinced that the Lord doesn't like. He don't like wishy-washy. Seems like there's a lot of wishy-washy Christians now. God's not a fan of ambivalence. I don't think the Lord's in favor of fence setters. He isn't pleased by people who can't make up their minds who want to weigh their options. The Lord says, follow me. Amen. Follow me. Jesus said, and he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. But go and preach the kingdom of God. Another said, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me bid farewell to those that are at home. And Jesus said unto no man having to put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, a question I think we need to ask ourselves once in a while. I wonder how committed I am. When I was a kid growing up, they said, are you sold out for Jesus? Are you sold out for Jesus? It seems like when you read the scriptures that the Lord would rather you be an out-and-out -out pagan than a lukewarm Christian. He said, you're tepid, you're lukewarm. And he said, when you act like that, he said, I'd just rather just spit you spew you out of my mouth. He said, I want you to be hot. I want you to be cold. You remember that verse? Amen. Revelation chapter 3. So let me ask you a question as I close. You remember Jesus had 12 disciples? Did you ever wonder why three of them seemed to be special? Did he have an inner circle? Did Peter, James, and John get to do some stuff that the other guys didn't get to do? Now, I could hear it nowadays. Well, that's not very fair. Jesus was prejudiced. Come on. Is that the way we talk nowadays? Come on, is that what, the way we talk? Is that our society? You ever wonder why Jesus chose those guys? You know what I think it was? Remember their nicknames? Peter, James, and John. James and John were called the sons of thunder. You remember that? And I already told you about Peter. He's the spokesman, man. He's ready to charge hell with a squirt gun. Yes or no? 
was thinking this afternoon as I was reading my sermon over again. I wonder what my nickname would be. The Lord seemed to have him, didn't he? Peter's name was Rocky. James and John were the sons of thunder. The other guys, they didn't have any nicknames. Could it be that maybe some of the 12 were more committed? than what the others were. I don't know. I'm, I was thinking about this afternoon. I rolled it over in my mind a bunch of times. I don't have the answer for that. You say, well, what about John chapter 21 when they went fishing and Peter leads the whole gang out there, and they fish all night. And they don't catch a thing, and they see somebody up on the shore, and Peter's naked. He says, fellas, it's the Lord. Who's the first guy in the water? Come on, who's the first guy in the water? Yeah. You get what I'm talking about? You say, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying that there's always room for improvement in my commitment. I'm seeing that every once in a while I get a little lukewarm. And the Lord says, come on back. Be an Elijah. Be an Elisha. You keep reading. I, I double dog there. You keep reading the story and you're going to find out this mantle deal is a big deal. Later on when it comes time to figure out who the new dude is because Elijah's gone back to heaven in a whirlwind. He takes that mantle off, Elijah's old mantle, and he smites the water. And the water opens up and the sons of the prophets say, there's the new dude. They knew who it was. By the way, they all had it that chance. God called Elisha. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray.